when I was pastor in Gatlinburg, 90% of the congregation every Sunday were visitors and tourists. And many of these were groups, fraternity groups, sorority groups from colleges. One winter there was a skiing group from Atlanta. They were all members of Grace Methodist Church in Atlanta. And there were about 70 of them who came to Gatlinburg for a weekend of skiing. And of course they came to our church. I preached that Sunday on the sermon title, Have Faith Will Travel. Now aren't you impressed that I remember <laughs> that I, the sermon that I preached that Sunday so long ago? Well, whenever I get a chance to affirm the fact that I can remember something, I want to take advantage of it. <laughs> anyway, later in the week, I got a letter from a young man who was a theology student at the Candler School of Theology. And he wrote in the letter, my wife and I attended your church on Sunday, having come with a group of young people from Grace Methodist Church. I came to your church very troubled. I came to Emory from Alabama, where there is segregation in the church, where there is animosity among the Methodists of the state over the problem of segregation. This was before the segregation walls came down in the church. He said, I had decided that I could no longer be a minister working in an environment like that. Or if I became a minister, I would not go back home. I would go somewhere else. But after hearing your sermon, I came to realize that's where I need to be. I can't run away from the problems of Alabama. I need to go back and help solve them. I have a faith that must travel. Well, that's what John says today in our lesson. He says you must have a faith that walks. And I like that connotation of one's faith, one that walks, because we can become so sedentary in our faith. We have a religious experience and we sit down and we savor it, we preserve it, we don't let it become tarnished, but we don't do anything about it. I heard of a group on retreat when they were telling of some of the high moments in their spiritual lives and one person spoke and said, 30 years ago, I became a Christian. <coughs> and that was the high moment which he wanted to share. And the speaker later said, if he had nothing more exciting in the 30 years since, it wasn't much of a spiritual awakening. Every day ought to be richer than the day before for each one of us who is a follower of Christ. Because we do not sit down, we walk. And when we walk, it takes us places. We've come to discover walking today in order to build up our bodies and to be strong. Growing up in a small town, I walked to school every day. I walked to church every Sunday. My father walked to his business. Walking was the prime means of 
travel back then. Now I drive down to the mailbox almost. <laughs> walking is great. But spiritual walking is vital if our faith is to really be in line with what God's purpose is for us. John said, I delight in your walking in truth. Truth is so vital for any person who wants to follow Christ. Not a biased faith. If we build a faith around what we want our faith to be, we violate God's truth. Only God has ultimate truth. Anything that we do apart from God's revealed truth is simply possibilities of truth. Everything that is ultimate truth must be measured by God's truth. And until we discover God's truth, we're on a journey toward truth. If we have reached the end of our journey, then we have discovered the ultimate truth. So many different viewpoints in religion today as various ideas are brought up into play and are expressed as truth when it really isn't God's truth. So many times we settle upon things that are wrong, that are false, and believe them to be true. But no matter how strongly we believe something to be true, if it isn't, we've gained nothing at all because only truth lasts and only truth is vital to our faith. So we don't stop with our understanding of something as long as it is fragmented or immature. We walk in truth until we know without any question that this is God's revelation to us. And of course our primary source for ultimate truth is in the words of Jesus because he came from the Father, he was the one who bore the Father's mind and revealed it to us. If Jesus said it, it's true. If someone is referring to Jesus, it may be flawed, but here is the ultimate truth itself. And so there is our primary source for truth. In the meantime, walk toward truth. Don't sit down with where we are in our search for truth. And John said, walk in your love. It's easy to know the needs of others and be compassionate about them. But if we sit down and have compassion in our heart and deplore to others the conditions of the world that allows this to happen, we're not accomplishing anything. True love walks. It goes toward the solving of the problems and not evaluating the problems. Joe Carter, a member of our class who isn't here this morning, is brother to Bishop Ken Carter. In my estimation, the greatest bishop of our church. I first met Ken when I was in my second pastorate, and he was in his first, and we were both members of the Conference Committee on Social Concerns. We were meeting to set up our budget for the year, and after all the items had been put into place, this young man whom I had not known prior to now, 
serving his first appointment coming out of seminary, dared to speak up and say, there's nothing in this budget for prison ministry. And I thought, well, what business do we have getting concerned about prison ministry? We're not in law enforcement. We have too many other things to be concerned about. This was well before prison ministry became one of the sensitive issues of the church that we've grappled with. Back then, nobody was doing anything. You broke the law, you went to prison, you served your term, then you came back out and tried to be rehabilitated. It was pretty much that simple. He was a young man declaring that we need to do something in prison ministry. Years passed. Later, he and I served adjoining parishes in Knoxville. I was at Carnes and he was at Concord and we became fast friends during that time because of our proximity. <coughs> I learned then that he had established a prison ministry at Concord, that they were going regularly to Brushy Mountain. I've never been there, but those who have described it as one of the worst places imaginable to find oneself. All hope is left at the door when you go into those dark walls. Later, Carlene became his director of music, and under his direction, she repeatedly took choirs over and had worship services in the prison, and she described the awful feeling that came when those gates clanked behind you and you were imprisoned in that terrible place. He was one of the few who was talking about it at that time, but it began to catch on. Then he was appointed pastor first of Church Street Church in Knoxville. That's the church that's so dear to my heart, as you know. And I wrote him a letter congratulating him on his appointment there. And he wrote back saying, I consider it a great honor because this is the flagship of Holston Conference. When I was pastor at Church Street, there were more furs in the congregation on Sunday morning than there were in all the furriers in Knoxville. <laughs> and every car parked outside was at least a Cadillac. It was the wealth of Knoxville that went to Church Street Church. My primary responsibility as associate pastor was to make pastoral calls. I rarely ever went into a home that wasn't out in Sequoia Hills or one of the upscale neighborhoods of the city. It wasn't that they were shut out, it just was the, the church for the faculty and administration of the university and the leaders of the city. This is a church to which Kent Carter went. And the first thing he did was to become aware of the fact that the community around Church Street has changed. When I was there, Gay Street was the prosperous city street. All of the shops and businesses were on Gay Street. It was a place to be at holiday time. When Ken Carter became pastor, it was filled with homeless people, boarded fronts. And the church sat in the middle of that squalor while people drove in from Sequoia Hills and elsewhere on Sunday. And he opened the church to the homeless. He opened a soup kitchen so that they could be fed. The associate pastor was renamed pastor to the homeless. And that was his only responsibility was to minister to the homeless. They didn't provide a separate church for the homeless. They brought them in to the church where others were. 
I had a prominent dentist on a committee that I chaired during that time who went to Church Street Church and he said Ken Carter has ruined our church he said you can't get in without getting past all of these people in rags hanging around the church and you can't get a seat in the congregation without possibly being seated next to one of them Ken was speaker at Emory University at a symposium that had delegates from all over the world there. He told about it at Church Street one Sunday morning when there was a homeless man who had come to church. And as they were leaving, they discovered that he had newspapers tied around his feet. He didn't have any shoes. Most of the people had left by then. And the men who were remaining there began to talk among themselves, what can we do to help him? He needs shoes. And while they were talking about what the possibilities were, another homeless man overhearing the conversation walked up and said, you can have mine. I have another pair. Took his shoes off and gave it to the homeless man who had newspapers on his feet. When Ken Carter told that at Emory University, the newspaper article that told about it said, that men who had spent their entire life in the ministry wiped tears from their eyes. He was soon to speak at Oxford University by invitation, and one of those who had extended the invitation was present, and he came up to Ken and he said, when you come to Oxford, you tell that story. I want the students at Oxford to hear. That's letting your love walk. Love reaches out and helps solve the problems, doesn't simply give one a feeling of comfort to know that you care. My word, this place is fantastic in there. The sheet went around just a minute ago, saying here are people who won't have a Christmas unless we do something about it. That's putting feet to love reaching out and John said you must have a fidelity that walks <clears throat> fidelity to the faith the true faith here he is in the very first century of the life of the church and he is chastising those who are part of the church by watering down the faith in order to make it more appealing to the masses. We haven't learned much because here we are in the 20th century and we tend to do the same thing today. Watering down the faith in order to appeal to the masses instead of holding up the faith in its true dimension of service and sacrifice. And that's what's so appealing about it. We don't want to water down faith. William Willimon is the dean of the chapel at Duke University, and while Carlene was on the faculty at Milligan, they had William Willimon as a convocation speaker, and I went over to hear him. He said that he was guest speaker at the Crystal Cathedral, Robert Schuler's church in Garden Grove, California. And before he went into the pulpit, or rather before he even prepared his sermon, he was instructed by Dr. Schuler, you are not to mention the cross in your sermon because it has negative overtones. 
nothing is ever said in this church that isn't of a positive nature and of a hopeful nature and nothing of a negative aspect at all. And he said, I felt helpless because my whole ministry, my whole faith is built around the cross. And he said, I did as I was instructed to do, but I felt like it was the most wasted sermon that I had ever preached. Now this is no condemnation of Robert Shuler because I, I hold him in high regard. But his ministry is built upon the fact of thinking positively and never looking at the negatives of life. But we have to look at the negatives of life if we are to be true to our faith, to overcome the negatives. One of the real problems that was taking place in the church at the time in which John wrote this letter was the fact that heresies were beginning to develop. I told you two weeks ago that docetism was a heresy that was threatening the church most at that time. Docetism was the theory that God cannot become mortal because mortality is evil and God cannot take on anything that is of an evil nature and so therefore God that Jesus is just an illusion of man he's strictly God but an illusion of humanity and when it appeared that he died on the cross he didn't really die it was just an illusion this took away the sacrificial nature of the crucifixion death had to occur we understand so little about the uh, meaning of Jesus' death and the power that it brings into changing our lives. But we know that if we take this seriously, the scripture, all of our faith is based upon Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In some miraculous way, He made atonement, which we couldn't do for ourselves. He did through His death. And we have to hold fast to that. And when we water it down to take all of this sort of thing out and just let people come and feel good when they leave, we're not keeping the fidelity of our faith. Watered down faith is an insult to God. And then John concludes his letter by taking on a members of one of the church there who he said, watch out for him. He thinks of himself first above everything else. Don't let his influence permeate the church. Isolate him from all influences. Love him and pray for him. But don't emulate him. Too many religious figures in our world today are emulated for who they are and not what they stand for. Paul said, it is not I, but Christ in me. John the Baptist said, I must be lessened that he may be made greater. The fidelity of our faith is based upon the fact that first and foremost, it is Christ and not ourselves. Our importance comes only in a reflection from Him. Are there any comments or questions on today's lesson? Last year when I was in Dalton, Georgia, uh, 
this lesson really is dear to my heart because I felt like as a stranger in first off Georgia and then Dalton and I was church shopping. Um, I ended up in another denomination in fact. Never thought I'd ever do that. Um, but the, I visited the Methodist and felt no warmth whatsoever. Never was visited by the minister after requesting three times to be visited by the minister. Said something to one of the teachers on the playground. She said, uh, well, you know, we're getting a new minister over at uh, First Presbyterian. And why don't you come? And I said, well, next week I'm going to Huntsville, Alabama, but I'll be there the next week. So Guy Griffith and I both started at the same time. He is a minister and he is a parishioner there. And I never saw a church that welcomed a stranger as much as those people. Every single person walked up, took your hand, said, I'm sorry, I don't know you. And throughout the, the year I was there, and it was only a very short year, in fact, um, they always made a point to try to get to know a little bit about me. And that was really special mm -hmm. because I was already relocating myself to that area to find out where I needed to go because of the death of sis and trying to decide where I was being led. John talked about the hospitality of the church to strangers. The theme of our denomination now is open doors, open hearts, and we're challenged to do that. Dr. Goodrich was at First Methodist in Dallas, one of my favorite preachers of all time. He got a letter in the mail one day, and in a hand, scrawled on common paper, ruled paper, said, I was so lonely last night, I had no one, and I felt that if I didn't get to be with someone that I was just going to take my own life. And as I was walking the streets in my loneliness, I came to your church and the windows were flooded with light. And I came in and I sat down as close as I could to somebody. And they looked at me and then moved down the pew away from me. And I felt lonelier than ever and I went to another pew and it looked like someone that would let me sit next to them and I moved up rather close and they got up and moved to another pew and I got up and walked out and I went down the street to a bar and I sat on the bar stool and nobody moved <laughs> now if that's not an indictment I don't know what it is well, I got instructions from Carolyn that she was going to leave, and I was to, I was to tell you when you can go, so you can go! <laughs>